Let me invite you to open up to Ephesians chapter 1. And while you do, let me tell you about Daniel Ford. Now, I did not know this until this past week. He wanted to boost American patriotism. So he asked Francis Bellamy to write a pledge of allegiance to the flag. And Bellamy did, and Ford published it in his 1892 publication called The Youth's Companion. Originally, it was kind of awkward when they published this. It was kind of weird because people faced the flag with their arms hanging limply at their sides, speaking to the flag. So they finally released instructions for how to say the pledge. And here's originally how you said the pledge based on these new instructions. You put your hand out towards the flag at a slightly upward angle with your fingers pointing to the flag. Now Mussolini and Hitler, they adopted the same thing. And so there became in America sort of an unrest because they're saying the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag looking like the Nazis in Germany, the despot over in Italy. So what they did, they began to change it. Military personnel, they were to salute during the Pledge of Allegiance. Citizens placed their right hands over their hearts. Men removed their hats. Later in 1954, under President Eisenhower, he asked the Congress to put in under God. Originally, under God was not in it. And that, that's been steadily attacked for the last 20 years. But this is our Pledge of Allegiance, and the atheists hated that part of it. And here's how it goes. You know it as well as I do. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands one nation, here's what was added, under God, added in 1954, indivisible with justice and liberty for all. That's the Pledge of Allegiance. I used to say it every single day at school, and I'm sure most of you have done it as well. But there is a greater pledge than that one that was made by God himself. Now, I really want to get your attention because I want you to know God made a pledge of allegiance as well. It's a lot different than the one that we say to our flag. And I want to show you where it is, Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 13. We're going to read it. Here's our text today. And here's what it says, verses 13 to 14. And if you can't see it on the screen, you're just going to have to listen really, really well to, uh, during this message. In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, I'm going to break that apart for you. So you're going to have to listen really, really well. And let's see what the Lord has for each of us Today. I want to look at two main points. We're going to look at the Holy Spirit seals first, and then we're going to look at the guarantee, the pledge part of it. Let's look at the Holy Spirit seals. Now, I want you to hear this. So look at me for just a second. I know some of you hate that part of it. You know, it's, I'm, I'm better looking when you're not looking at me. I get it. I've been told that. By the way, I've been told that my face makes people nauseous when I'm preaching. I actually had, she's a friend of mine, or she was rather. I walked by her after a sermon, and she said, you know what? When I look at you, your face makes me nauseous. Now, that's when I had that really big beard, which I love and will be coming back. Amen? Where's the amens? Wow. 
Some of y'all have been talking to my wife. She hated it too. But I want you to hear this. So you got to give me your attention. Now, you got to get this. The triune God. Some of y'all call it the Trinity. The triune God. I think that's a better phrase. The triune God. The Father, the Son, and Spirit. One God, three persons. Father, Son, Spirit. All three persons are involved in salvation. All right, now that's easy to say. But can you grab on to this? Can you hold on to this? Because you've got to learn this. The Father planned for our salvation. He purposed it, the Bible says. Jesus Christ earned our salvation. He was obedient to fulfill all of the law. He died a perfect, righteous death on the cross. He earned our salvation. Now listen, the Father planned it. He purposed it. The Son earned it. What's the Spirit do? Well, the Spirit applies it. The Spirit takes a believing person and he applies what Christ earned on the cross. He applies what the Father purposed and he applies it to the heart of the believing soul and he remakes that person. He regenerates that person. He saves that person. There's a lot that happens in the moment of salvation. And Paul's going to show us this in Ephesians 1.13. Now let's look at it again. Look at it with me, verse 13. Now listen, we've got to be, one more time, look at me and then I'm going to stop doing that, hopefully. Let me just say this, because I've got to get your attention. Listen, when you're a student of God's word, every single word matters in the Bible. So if it's in a sequence, it's in a sequence for a reason. And if a word is there, whether you know what it means or not, or it think, you think it may sound strange to your ears, that's all right. That's where you study it. And if you get to a place in the Bible where you don't understand what it is saying, this is where you sit in it, you meditate on it. That word means you're like a cow that chews its cud, swallows the grass, throws it back up, chews it a little bit finer, swallows it, repeats that until it gets that food to a point of uh, smallness to where its stomach can handle it. That was the worst description of a cow's eating that I think I've ever given. But I think you got it. When, I've, when I veer from my notes, you are in a world of trouble. So here we go. we got to get the sequence. A person, verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth. So you got to hear the word of truth. By the way, look at, look at the Bible for a second. You hold it. Let it be tactile in your hands. If you don't have it in your hands, you're not listening to me. Get it in your hands. This is the word of truth. This is where the gospel is captured. So this is when you hear this, the Bible, the gospel message, then it does something. Well, Paul says what it does. In him you also, when you heard the gospel, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. That's the second thing. You heard it. Now you believe it. All of a sudden, you're sealed. The promised Holy Spirit seals you. So here's the sequence. Listen, this gives you courage to share the gospel to your unbelieving friends. There's going to be a point when the Spirit of God does something in that friend, this is what you're praying, Spirit of God, do something, reborn them, regenerate them, get them able to perceive, that was last week, able to perceive your truth, and then you share with them the gospel. And the moment that they then believe, there's got to be a response, the moment they believe in the gospel, the Spirit of God seals them. 
This is plainly what Paul is saying. Spirit doesn't seal before belief. Look at that order again. Hear it, believe it, sealed. There's not a lag. There's not an amount of time that's got to elapse before the Spirit seals you. It's hear, believe, and maybe 10 years down the road, the Spirit of God begins to seal. No, it's instantaneous. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God, regenerates a person's spirit so that they can believe, and the person's got to respond. Listen, you've got to respond to that Word. The Spirit of God is enabling you to perceive. And when you respond by faith, the Spirit of God seals you. Now listen, there is a difference between the Spirit's saving and his sealing, kind of like buying a new home and moving into it. Now, did you hear that? There's a difference between being saved and being sealed. Yes, it's instantaneous, but that difference is similar to buying a new home. You got a home, you own it, but then you got to move into it. Sealing is moving into it. But what's that mean? What does it mean to be sealed by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you several ways that seals were used in the scripture. Here's the first one. Now listen, this is so important because all of these are true for you Christian brothers and sisters. The moment you heard the word of God and you believed in it, you were sealed. But what does that mean? Well, number one, it's this. It's a sign of ownership. The moment the spirit of God sealed you, he put a sign on you that he owns you. You've been bought with a price. You are not your own. You belong to Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God sealed you into that ownership. And by the way, there was an ancient practice of sealing. It went like this. It would take wax. They would melt it onto a letter. It would fold paper, and then they would melt the wax onto the letter where the folds met. Or on the lid of a box. And before that wax totally hardened, while it was hardening, the person would take a seal. It became a signet ring by popularity. Not always. Sometimes it was hung around the neck. Sometimes it was a seal that was pinned to the sleeve or to the chest of your robe. But it became popular that a signet ring would be impressed into that wax and then letting it harden that image that it would leave for the mark of the owner. This is why Paul's saying in 2 Corinthians 1, it is God who has put his seal on us. Listen, when God puts his seal on you, brother and sister, that very moment of your belief, the moment you became saved, he put his seal on you. Now watch, and what that seal did was it marked you out as his. You belong to him. You don't belong to the world. You don't belong to you. I don't belong to me. We belong to God. We are his property. He is our owner. And it marks us out separate from unbelievers. Those whom he seals come into his family. Those whom he does not seal are not in his family. They are outside of his family. The Bible calls them unbelievers. But there isn't four other ways that the seal was used that I want to give you. The second was this. It was also a sign of security. Not just ownership, 
but of security. And I want you to remember that Persian king, Darius, who issued an edict. Do you remember that? An edict is a law. His wise men tricked him into this. They were trying to trap Daniel. Daniel, the most godly man in, on the planet at that time, I think. They tried to trick him. So they got the king to write a law that said, no one could pray to anybody but to you, king. Now, what man's not going to like that, right? Worship coming to you, your whole family fawning down to you. This time, a whole nation exponentially multiplied. So Darius is tricked into it. He issues this edict, this command. Nobody can worship. Nobody can pray to any god but me. Now, you see how he saw himself? Didn't deter Daniel. It ought not deter you. Listen, if you've got somebody on this planet that's telling you you cannot worship God, you've got a higher authority. You've got a higher authority. Daniel prayed, and he left his window open. And he's praying in front of his window. He, listen, the guy was bold. And he prays to God, and they were waiting there for him, and they went to tell the king, and the king says, I love Daniel. He did, and, but I've got to carry out my edict and a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the lion's den and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning daniel now listen to this that nothing might be changed concerning daniel that's the power of a seal it is a sign of a security he didn't want to. Darius, the king of Medes, the king of Persia, he loved Daniel. It grieved him. He didn't sleep all night, the Bible says. As soon as the daylight came, before daylight came, he rushed to the lion's den. They threw open that, that stone that was blocking that den, and he cried out, Daniel, did your God protect you? But listen, he with his signet ring, he sealed the lion's den that nothing might be changed. I want, I want you to think of that, Christian. The Holy Spirit has sealed you into the promises of God. The Spirit of God has made you utterly secure in your salvation. Nothing might be changed concerning you. Now listen, if you've got a problem with the assurance of your salvation, if you've got an issue that you think you could lose your salvation, you don't understand the seal. You didn't seal yourself, Christian. Your seal is not from your own ring. Your seal is not based on your faithfulness. Your seal is not based on your perseverance. It's not based on your endurance. It is God's seal. His name is the Holy Spirit. And he came upon you and he is owning you. And you are secure in that forever. The very moment you became a Christian, God stamped his signet ring on you. The promised Spirit of God and said you are secure there is no one that can break this seal that nothing might be changed concerning you ownership security let me give you the third way it was a sign of authority do you remember Esther remember Esther married that king of Assyria wicked Haman hated her hated the Jews hated Mordecai her uncle Esther's uncle tried to plan an obliteration of the Jews, tried to kill all of the Jews um, um, around the whole kingdom. And when his plot was uncovered, 
the king allowed an edict. You remember this? He couldn't change. He gave Haman legal recourse to do what Haman plotted. The king could not change his own law, so he created a new edict. And here's what happened. And he wrote in the name, he had Mordecai write in the name of King Ahasuerus. Now listen. And sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service. And of course, the edict was any Jew had the right to take up arms and defend himself. And those couriers were messengers and they carried the king's message and they represented his authority. And this is what John 16 says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare it to you, the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit of God is the courier sent from the king with a message. You see, the very moment that the king sealed, Mordecai got the king's seal and sealed that edict. Well, it represented the king's own authority. The king's seal carries the king's authority. So now you've got, you've got ownership, you've got security, and you've got authority. This is all of what the seal embodied in the Bible, but there's a fourth one. It was a sign of a finished transaction. Now Babylon is the superpower of the day. He, Babylon had come up against Jerusalem, and they laid siege to Jerusalem. And inside Jerusalem was a prophet of God named Jeremiah. But the Jewish king hated Jeremiah because Jeremiah kept warning, prophesying, telling them that Babylon's coming. You're going to be destroyed. Why? Because you're faithless. You have turned away from God. So the Jewish king took Jeremiah, the prophet, and put him in prison. But there's a little bit of a freedom in those kinds of prisons. So here comes a cousin of Jeremiah. And he says to him, I want to sell you a field. Now listen, you got to get this. Jerusalem's under siege. There's really not a lot of real estate, real estate transactions normally going on. But God tells Jeremiah to purchase the field that your cousin's going to want to sell you. Even if there is a siege, I want you to buy this field because this is going to be a symbol of God's land that the Jews will come back to from Babylon. He's going to carry them off into exile. But he's going to bring him back. Now watch what happens. Then Hanamel, my cousin, Jeremiah speaking, came to me in the courts of the guard, that's where the prison was, in accordance with the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. So Jeremiah signed the deed, sealed it, Remember, this is a sign of a finished transaction. Signed the deed, sealed it. That means the property has changed ownership. And he got witnesses and he weighed the money on scales. He bought the property, he signed the deed, he sealed it with witnesses, and it showed that it was a done deal. Now, Christian, listen to me, this is so incredibly important. You are not in the process of being or of getting your salvation. 
You are saved the moment you heard the word of truth and you believed in it. You were sealed. You were taken out of the kingdom of this world, literally, spiritually, put into the kingdom of God. You were taken out of the kingdom of the world where only unbelievers live. You were put into the kingdom of God, which is where God's reign and sovereign rule presides. And this is where it's expressed in the church. You're no longer of the world. You're of the kingdom of God. Now watch this. You cannot move from the kingdom of God back to the kingdom of the world. Now watch. You can take on the world's clothes. You can live like the world. And you can sin. God will discipline you. God will rebuke you. God will deal with you. But you can never come back into the kingdom of the world. Now why is that? This is why we immerse in baptism. See, baptism is a sign. Baptism doesn't save you. It's a sign that you are saved. And in baptism... We lower you below the water. Below the water symbolizes the grave. And once you come up out of that water, it is that when Jesus came out of that grave, now watch, he left his grave clothes in the grave. You're given new clothes, Christian brother and sister. You're now in robes of justified righteousness, made white by the blood of Christ. That's what we're going to celebrate in communion. You are a new creation. You cannot become back to the old creation. It is impassable. You cannot go back into the kingdom of the world. You are in the kingdom of God. It is a finished transaction, and God has sealed you into it. You cannot go back. You've been signed, sealed, and delivered. This is what Corinthians says. For all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Listen, every promise of God was fulfilled and stamped and sealed by Christ. And the Spirit of God puts that seal upon you. Every one of them find their yes in Christ. But finally, there was a sign of authenticity the seal was. Remember King Ahab? He had a wicked wife, Jezebel, who came from Sidon. Sidon, Tyre, Sidon. This is where her father was the king, and that's where the epicenter of Baal worship originated. And she brought and imported Baal and the goddess Ashtoreth into Israel. So she marries Ahab, no doubt in an alignment between Israel and her father, the Sidonians. She marries Ahab, she brings in her wickedness, she brings in an importation of false gods, and it leads Israel astray time and time again. But Ahab was a petulant little king, weak. He pouted. He pouted because he wanted a field that was right next to his palace. He wanted that field for a vegetable garden, the Bible says. But the field belonged to Naboth, and the Bible says you should never sell your inherited possession. The land is yours. To sell it is to spit on the land, God's own blessing to you. So Naboth said to Ahab, I will not sell it to you. And so Ahab pouted. And finally Jezebel said, why are you pouting? And he says, because I want that land from Naboth. I want it for a vegetable garden, and he won't sell it to me. So she says, well, I'm going to take care of this. She wrote letters in her husband's name. Now watch this. Sealed those letters with his own signet ring. 
And she set up a plot to murder Naboth so Ahab could take his land. That wax seal imprinted by her husband's ring proves its authenticity. Even though Ahab did not write it, didn't matter. The seal proved its authenticity, that the letter was genuine, that its contents trustworthy, and they had Naboth falsely accused and executed. It's a sign of authenticity. You got a letter from the king with a seal on it. You didn't debate. You didn't do a forensic analysis on it to see if this really came from his own willful, intentional motive. It carried his own authority. It was authentic. And though Jezebel abused the power of the seal, God never does, nor can he. And the moment that his spirit seals a believer at the moment of salvation, listen, he pronounces that person a genuine, legitimate, authentic, unquestioning child of his. This is the power of the seal of the spirit. Now, I want you to hear this very carefully. Because each one of those five that I told you about has to stay in mind. You've got to anchor it into your doctrine. You've got to anchor it into what you believe. Because when the lies come in that the devil is going to whisper, he's going to begin to say, how could you possibly be a believer when you keep sinning like that? I mean, if you are really a believer, wouldn't you then have what the Bible says, the power to overcome this sin? going to begin to erode your faith and you've got to understand the seal the moment you heard the word of truth and it responded in your soul and you believed in jesus in that moment you were saved you bought the house jesus bought it for you and he gave it to you but you haven't moved in yet you moved in the very instantaneous moment that the spirit of god sealed you you got the house and now you're in it the power of the seal and it can help you regain the confidence center. I sin too. We struggle with sin. And it can help you regain the confidence. Not about me. It's about the Spirit of God. He is faithful. And He's given us a Holy Spirit to seal and confirm our faith, not just once. He's given it once, but it confirms our faith continually. But the Holy Spirit is the deposit. The Holy Spirit's a guarantee. Let's move to point number two, and we're going to move a little quicker. Look what it says again, Ephesians. The promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Now, there's a lot in here. So I'm going to be pretty quick, and you've got to listen just as fast. Guarantee. You see that word in your text? Guarantee was a deposit, it means a deposit paid in advance as a pledge that the rest of the money is coming. When you make a deposit, it functions, let's say like a down payment on a home, guaranteeing that you're going to pay the rest of the installments. When God made the guarantee, when the Spirit of God sealed you, it was a deposit. It was God's way of making his down payment on your life. You got the home, he bought it for you, and he's going to help you move into it, and ultimately he's going to bring you home to glory. 
It's his down payment. Now, what's his down payment? Now, watch this. The Holy Spirit. Not empty, trivial, meaningless words. The Spirit of God is God's down payment. The Spirit of God is the guarantee. It's a promise. It's a pledge that God has made to you, that God has made to me, saying, here's the first installment. I'm sealing you with the Spirit of God, and I've got all the blessings of Christ that are now yours. But there is so much more coming, you can't even imagine it now. And I will make that final payment when I bring you into glory. The ESV has a footnote here. The NIV says it. The ESV goes like this in the end of verse 13 into 14. The promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until God redeems his possession. What's that mean, God redeems his possession? Now watch this. You can hold on to this because redeems, very simple word. It just simply means to buy back means to buy back. To redeem something is to buy it, is to purchase it, is to buy it back for you. Truly no man can ransom another. That word ransom is the word of redeem. No man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, the psalmist says, for the ransom of their life is costly, can never suffice. In other words, the psalmist knew all the way back in the Old Testament, probably 1,000 B.C., when that was written, right about then, that, you know what, you can't redeem yourself. I can't redeem myself. Listen, everything that I pay for my life is tainted. All of my works are like righteous rags. Can I be crass for a moment? You know what that meant in Isaiah? It meant the cloths that men, women use in their period. The only thing you do with that is you take them out and you burn them. That's what it means, that all of your works are like righteous rags. That's how God views the very best that you and I do before Christ. They're not up to his level of holiness. Even though they might be great on the outside, inside there's a little bit of a self-motivation. And God says, I can't accept that. You have no payment. You cannot redeem your own life. You can't buy your life back. You're caught up. You're, in the, you're locked into the penalty of sin. You're a prisoner in this world. If somebody's going to take you out of this world and put you into the kingdom of God, then you've got to be bought out of it. You've got to be redeemed. You've got to be ransomed. And this is Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. To free us from the penalty of sin. Now, I want you to hear that. Free us from the penalty of sin. Get that P word, penalty. Because now you're going to hear a different P word because there's a different, there's another redemption that we're hearing here that awaits every believer. Now, you might be getting lost. Now, let me, let me slow down for just a second. Because this series, Ghost Sightings, Seeing the Spirit of God in Action Today, listen, this has been meaty. You can't be getting milk in your sermons. You've got to get the doctrine. You've got to get the truth. It's my job or whoever's preaching to deliver it to you in a way that makes sense. But you've got to grab it. There's another redemption. Listen, Christian brother, you've got another redemption coming. Sister, you too. It's awaiting you. And Irene Piper, she's already experienced this. She just passed away a few weeks ago. God redeems 
his possession when he removes us permanently from the presence of sin. Listen, Jesus died as a ransom to take you out of the penalty of sin, but there's a re another redemption that awaits. In the moment that God comes and gets you and brings you home, he's going to remove you, he's going to redeem you from the presence of sin. You won't have suffering anymore. You're not going to have temptation take you under the waters of failure. You're not going to have bad attitudes. You're not going to sin against the person you love the most. Listen, there will be a time where God takes you out of this world and he removes you from the presence of sin. This is, redeems his possession. Now look at verse 18, if you would please, in this chapter. Look what Paul prays. He's praying here. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. He's, he's here, look at me. He, he's saying this, God, would you open their eyes so that they can see it? So that they can see the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, you probably read this before, but I'm wondering if you've noticed the wording. Look at that last part, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints now watch look at me don't you think with me that one day you're going to die unless christ comes back you're going to die he's going to bring you into glory and you're going to get your inheritance the deposit was made the spirit of god is the first installment he seals you into that one day you're going to get it all you're going to get not only the house that he purchased for you you're going to get everything that goes with it you're going to get all the blessings that's not what this verse is saying. Yes, that's all true, but look at This verse says God's going to get his inheritance. Did you know God has an inheritance? You know God's looking forward to getting it? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Here's his inheritance. He wants the church. He wants you, brother and sister. He can't wait for the day that he brings all of us home so that we can dwell with him and he with us. That's your inheritance. That's his inheritance. The church. Now, God's people in the Old Testament were referred to as God's treasured possession. Now, let me ask you, now look at, look at this for a second. Answer this. What is your, now everybody look at me for a minute. This is important. What is your most treasured possession? Now just think through that for a second. You don't have to answer it. Just think through it. Your diamond ring collection. I know somebody at Wawa up on College Hill that just got broken into in Williams Township and a person stole all of her diamond rings, all of her diamond jewelry. Not there anymore. What's your most treasured possession? Is it your children? Is it your family? Is it your job? Your car? Is it your motorcycle? Your golf clubs? What is your most treasured possession? Well, have you ever wondered, what is God's most treasured possession? I'm going to tell you what it is. It is the church. You, Christian brother, me, you, Christian sister. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. This is a blessing to the Jews. 
They were the apple of God's eye, meaning they were the pupil and his eyelids closed to protect when a windstorm came. Here comes a trial to harm the Jews. God's eyes closed to protect them. The apple of his eye. He found him in a desert land, Israel, and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled them, him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. But watch, listen, God's plan of redemption didn't end with Israel. It extended through Israel to all nations. Listen, Israel was to be a witness to the world of the glory and the salvation of God. It's available to anybody who will believe in him. And Gentiles are saved. That's most of us. And they are grafted, grafted. They join with the Jewish believers. And together, Jew and Gentile, redeemed, make up the church. Church has not replaced Israel. Listen, if you've got a replacement theology, you've got to rethink it. God still loves the Jews. The church hasn't replaced Israel. It was the plan of God all along. She is God's blood-bought possession. Listen to Acts. Pay careful attention to yourselves. And to all of the flock in which the Spirit of God has made you overseers. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The church is God's blood-bought possession. Now listen, what would you give your life for? I already asked you what your most treasured possession is. What would you give your life for? Well, that's your blood-bought possession. But there's something that I find very interesting in verses 1 through 14, and I'm winding down to the end of this, so you've got to listen really carefully. Verses 3 through 14, not 1 through 14. Now, this is so interesting. You won't see it in your English Bibles, but in the Greek, New Testament's written in mostly Greek, a little Aramaic, Old Testament written in Hebrew, translated from the Greek. Listen, in the Greek text, there's not one single period from verses 3 through 14. It is a divinely cosmic run-on sentence. Not one period. You know what that means? It is the flowing, uninterrupted moment of worship from Paul. It is so high and lofty that he will not even pause. He will not interrupt it with a period three times. Three times in this long sentence from 3 through 14, all one sentence, he writes this, to the praise of his glory. Now, have you ever seen this? For many of us, we've read this before. Have you ever noticed three times to the praise of his glory in verses 3 through 14? You want to know something interesting? To the praise of his glory is like visiting a black gospel church where you hear them shout out hallelujah throughout the service. It's awesome. Or in our church, the occasional amen. It's to the praise of his glory functions like that. It's the overflow of a heart of worship. It can only be captured, listen, by a vertical praise shout. But three times, here's what's interesting. The first time it's for the Father because he gets the credit for purposing our salvation, planning it. The second time for the son who accomplished everything that was necessary for you and I to be saved. And here in our text, verses 13 to 14, it's for the spirit who applied this salvation to us and sealed us with a deposit, a guarantee. 
And what it means is God gets the credit. God gets the credit. You and I don't. If you want glory to go to God, give him the credit. It's not that you woke up one day and say, you know what, I'm ready to believe. I'm going to get saved. No, you didn't. The Spirit of God got you ready for that. The Spirit of God did that work. The Father purposed it before the, plan, the creation of the earth. The Son accomplished it. The Spirit of God said, today is the day of your salvation. I'm going to regenerate you so that you can see it now, and I'm going to seal you the moment you respond in belief. The Holy Spirit who seals us. Now watch, I'm almost done. Who settles in your heart that you have been signed for, sealed, and you will ultimately be delivered. The guaranteed fact. And you're going to be delivered to glory. Now on the back of your bulletin is one of the most remarkable devotionals I've ever read. I told you a few months ago, one of the things I do for devotions is Morning and Evening Devotions by Charles Spurgeon. This is one of the ones I read this week. If you were reading that, you read it too. It came up this past week. I think it's the best devotional on all of the riches that you and I have in Christ if you are saved. And I'm going to encourage you this week to read it. And to read it more than once and let it fill your heart with praise to the glory of the one who chose to save you, the one who accomplished your salvation, and the one who applied it to you the moment you believed and sealed you into his promises forever. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.